take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. <clears throat> We're going to continue, of course, our series on creation versus evolution. We're going to start by looking in Romans chapter 1 here. Last week, our goal was to understand the terms of evolution and the terms of creation. So what we're going to do, we did that last week. We'll give a little recap of that and then jump into some more stuff that we have this week. If you weren't able to check that out, then obviously you can uh, look that up on the church website or the um, YouTube and all that stuff. All right. Romans chapter 1, and we'll start in verse 18 here. And I think this is very, very important when we look at the subject of evolution versus creation because uh, words are not minced here in the book of Romans. And Romans chapter 1 especially um, hits pretty hard towards people who would change, change what God had said. So let's look at this. Romans chapter 1 and verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Interesting that it says, hold the truth in unrighteousness. They take something that is true and they make it not so. Verse 19, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath shown it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that when they knew God... They glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man, and birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Wherefore God also gave them up to unclean, uh, 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 uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. Verse 25, so important here. Who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Let's pray real quick. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for our time together, Lord. We pray for those, Lord, just mentioned, um, Caden, Lord, and Lindsay and other people, Father. We pray, uh, we thank you, Lord, for the good test results with Clint and Lord, there are people who are hurting, people who are in the hospital, people who need your help right now, Father. And oh, that was, That's what we're called to do. We're called to, to call out to you, Lord, in prayer. And we know that you answer prayers, Father. And we, we cry out, Lord, to you each and every day for things that, for pain and for loss and other stuff like that. Father, all around this world, Christians call to you. I pray, Father, that you'll just answer the prayers of your children. I pray, Lord, for the people on a prayer list, Father, that you'll be with them. Help them to do great this week, Lord. I uh, pray for Lindsay and her situation, Lord, that you would just keep her safe there at the hospital. Help Caden's stuff and all that that he's dealing with to calm down. And we'll praise your name for it, Lord. Please bless us as we look in your word and we look at examples of creation, Father, and what you have for us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Now, like I said last week, it was to go over the terms of creation and evolution. And with creation, the terms are pretty simple. When we looked at them, um, there is a God that was very, very, we went through the whole first chapter of Genesis. There is a God. He is the ultimate designer. He designed and created everything. The pinnacle of his creation 
is man and woman. Okay, the terms of evolution, what we went over, is a little bit different. And evolution is like we talked about last week, disagree on a whole host of things, but there are a couple things that they do agree on. And those being that there is not a God, absolutely no way there cannot be a God. There is no design. We are all here by happen chance, and this is true science. Now, I don't have it with me here today, but maybe we'll do it probably either next week or the week after that. But there's a book actually called The uh, Evolution uh, Manifesto. And what it is is a guy wrote this book because even in their own community, they admit that they have no hope. There's just no hope. There's no peace in a life like that. So this book explores that and it tries to give someone who doesn't believe in God a hope, a reason to live. How sad is that? You know, you, you have to have a book fabricated by man to come up with the reason why you exist in this world. And this guy's opinion, and now we're going to try to figure out, well, not just we don't know why we're here, but what, what, what is the purpose of us even existing? The communist, uh, no, I'm going to say the communist, Woo, the evolutionist <laughs> manifesto. That communist manifesto is for a whole other series. We'll get on that later. Um, so evolutionist manifesto. So we see they don't believe in those things. They believe in true science. Now, we mentioned this last week. I'm going to recap it super, super fast. Evolution states that every living organism comes from a common ancestor. That common ancestor being a single cell microorganism that was probably a form of bacteria. That form of bacteria, if you remember, came into existence, came into being by two different ways that this could have happened. The first way is a biogenesis, meaning that on the seafloor in the muck and mud, didn't look like the sea today apparently, uh, something happened and there was some type of shock or explosion that took place and it took all of these uh, uh, molecules and merged them together and then we have life. And then from that life eventually came from the sea. That was disproven though in the 1700s, so we don't pay much credence to that. Credence to that. But we, they still come around to it even though it was disproven. The other thing was that possibly um, that small little microorganism was created on another planet. That was placed on a comet or a meteor by something or someone, Ooh, you know, you can go through the whole stuff. When you get into the, when you start to get into the weeds about, well, where did the comet go? Okay, where did that come from? Then you end up with all these strange intelligent design stuff. It has to be an alien, but it's, there's no way it can be God, you know. So it arrived on the back and it lands down in the muck and in the mud. And from that, eventually over millions and millions and billions of years, we have life that comes from that. And literally, what I said was, is this is called the scientific process. Literally, this is considered mainstream science. That's what I'm talking about here. And then what Christians are told, and we'll get into this more as we go along, what Christians are told is that we are the science deniers to believe that there is just design. You are a denier and you can lose your job. You can lose, uh, uh, your whole life's work can be gone if you even question that. We're going to look at where did that come from? What about healthy debate where you can actually debate something? Well, we're going to see where healthy debate was really shoved out of the door here with these three men that we talked about because you're not allowed to debate something. Isn't it amazing whenever someone, if you want to have a discussion with someone and they just get louder and louder and angrier and angrier, you might have hit a nerve on what uh, the, the real problem there is, okay? So they said, nope, this is a scientific process. Um, 
and it's not to be taken lightly. Now, we looked at three men last week. Jean-Baptiste Lamarck, who is the French naturalist, he's there on the left, or the, uh, your left, my right, and he believed that things evolved rapidly, very, very quickly. And it's interesting because, and we'll come back to this a little bit later, one of his main, the main reasons why he thought things evolved so rapidly was that due to the fact that birds did not have teeth. <laughs> Honest to goodness, did you know that birds do not have teeth? They don't. They have beaks. It's incredible. So sometime along the line, the teeth must have fallen out of their head. That is it. I'm not kidding. That's a literally, that's one of his main things. He could not understand why birds had beaks. So we go back and we look at the start of Genesis and we see that the, the fowl of the air and the beast of the field, they're separated. God created two separate things. He could not fathom that at all. And it's also interesting when you look at this, um, it's been proven wrong, but they keep circling back. They keep recycling ideas is what evolutionists do so oftentimes. If you've ever been to a, uh, a dinosaur show, like, well, they'll have like stuff for the, the dinosaur kids and this, some of that. Do you notice now over the really the past like 15 years or so, they've started to add feathers to the dinosaurs? You notice that? They start to, the velociraptors now have feathers coming out because they have a structure that sort of reminds us of a bird. So surely that must be an ancestor. The birds must have come from that. So what you do is you'll see these dinosaurs, even Trinosaurus rex, will have these feathers. So you'll see funny um, mock-ups, uh, uh, pictures and stuff of like a Trinosaurus rex with chicken wings and huge chicken drumsticks and all that. And it's like, well, that's where it came from. So you're eating T-Rex whenever you go to Chick-fil-A. So we're just going to leave that there and we're going to move on. So it's, it's, it's incredible to me that that was one of his huge things. So he did that. Lamarck did that. Now, the person we mentioned last week, the, we called him the puppet master. This was Charles Lyell. He was the Scottish geologist who hated the Bible. He called it diluvian humbug. He sought to free the science from Moses in his own words. So what you have is you have someone who's not going through the process, the scientific process, they're looking, they want to get this means, they want to get this ends, and they're going to use whatever means they can to reach that end. So Lyle comes, he has an idea, he's going to fix Lamarck's, uh, uh, his uh, evolution theory there, and he just adds hundreds of millions of years. And it's a thing he started, but we've been doing it ever since. You've ever heard of the Big Bang Theory? You've ever heard of the multiverse? All that's doing is going, here's a problem that we can't understand. So we're just going to throw as much time at it as we can. And then somewhere along that path, it's going to work out. And then the odds are in our favor. It's interesting, though, because the more time you, if something's not working out, the more time you put at it, actually it diminishes the chances of that, which is interesting. So adding time was the solution. I wrote this down. Um, my son James, who's homesick tonight, he had a similar tactic recently of adding time to make things better. We were driving back from my birthday party. This has been a while back. And um, James, he was sitting in the back seat, and I looked at, back at James, and I said, James, I cannot wait to get home and see what you got me for my birthday. And he just stared at me <laughs> for a second. And he said, Dad, you didn't have time. I said, really? He said, but we will next year. I said, oh, good, good. So I'm going to try that with James on his birthday uh, later in, in July. 
James thought adding a year would help uh, the situation there. It did not. So I said, nice try, James. Anyways, so Lyle came up with this. He came up with something called uniformitarianism. And the more you say it, the easier it is to say. I found that out whenever I was writing this stuff down. Now it's just natural. I say it in my sleep. So it's called the theory of uniformitarianism or gradualism, meaning that life on earth and earth itself has aged at the same rate, meaning that you can test what is going on today and then you will know what has happened in the past meaning that no catastrophic event has ever happened in the past. No flood has ever taken place. And after Lyle did this, which we're going to talk about next week, he started a campaign to pressure the pastors. And the pastors and the ministers of Scotland and of England were so afraid, they were so afraid to be seen as not intelligent, not educated, that they literally began to teach the people in their church about evolution. And we've seen the ripple effects from that even um, to this day. All right. So then we saw next was Charles Darwin, the young man. Lyle met a freshly ordained young minister out of Christ College in Cambridge. Seeing the potential in Darwin, he offered him a geologist spot on the scientific expedition aboard the HMS Beagle. The journey would take about five years. The only stipulation was that Darwin needed to carry Lyle's three books of geology with him, the principles of geology. Everything he saw was to be interpreted through the lens of gradualism. So Darwin accepts the offer and leaves the Church of England. Now what he does is he begins to set sail. What we're told is that he went out and he discovered all of these incredible things. He made all these discoveries. We'll see the Galapagos Islands. He went out and was blown away like no one had ever gone on any of these expeditions before. Darwin was the only one to go out there and do it. My goodness, there was no one else on board. Forget about the captain. Uh, the captain's name was uh, Fitzroy, I believe it was, aboard the Beagle. And he, was, he is credited with creating the first uh, weather forecast machine. The guy was a genius. Uh, he saw how inexperienced and uneducated, basically, Darwin was and actually pushed back against that. Later, he, um, he really uh, basically um, uh, debated and begged Darwin not to push forward with these because he saw how dangerous some of his writings were, um, which is pretty sad. So he decides to take those. He goes off on the HMS Beagle. It set sail from Plymouth, England on December 27th. 1831 and it heads south towards South America. Now before we begin our journey here with Charles Darwin, we need to look at a couple of things real quick. The first thing we need to look at here, because this is going to help us when, it look, when we're talking about science, we have to define a couple of things because some of the means that Darwin comes up with some of these, um, some of his conclusions are crazy. Just out there. Literally, let's just throw observations out there and see what sticks, and then people say, absolutely, that's proven science, but it's really not. Now, what is the difference between observation and evidence? What would be the difference in observation and evidence? Now, observation is taking note of something with your own senses. One might record and observe the temperature of a chemical reaction. One might measure and observe the distance between point A and point B. One might smell and observe the fragrance of bacon frying in the morning. Who doesn't like that? That's just good stuff when you wake up to that smell. All right, one might observe the, the behavior of an animal in the wild. OK, 
Okay? So all of these things, it's all observation. You can see it with your own eyes. You can hear it. You can smell it. You can taste it. All that stuff. I observed a video of a tourist one time uh, recording a bison from five feet away. And then I also observed that tourist observing the bison from 20 feet in the air. So that was incredible as well. So you have to be careful when it comes to observing things. So we all observe stuff. Every single day of our life, just like you are right now, we observe things. We can do that in the here and now. What Lyle did is whenever he pushed that, he said you would be able to tell the past by what you observe today. And that's what was so dangerous. Now that's observation. We observe right here and now. The next thing is evidence. And this is very important because evidence on the other hand refers to information that has been left behind. This is very important, too, whenever you're talking about the scriptures, okay? When you're looking at, well, we have this stuff passed down from generation to generation to generation, and we look at the, the account of the Gospels and all like that, the evidence is very, very important. Evidence can take the form of a testimony, documents, photographs, videos, voice recordings, DNA testing, other tangible objects like murder weapons, Colonel Mustard, and the billiard room with the rope candlestick. I heard candlestick. Yes, could be candlestick. I always like Colonel Mustard because I like to eat mustard. And I thought, hey, he's a pretty cool guy. So we picked them. You can never be the girl in Clue, though. That was a big no-no. They were always Mrs. White. She was the main one who was the bad guy, I think, in that game. Anyways, that's a good game. That's a good game that focuses on the need to have evidence. All right. So that's why when you look at evidence, evidence is so important in our lives. That's why whenever a murder takes place, Evidence from studies have shown that 16% of, uh, um, uh, of the murders are committed by a member of the victim's family. 64% is by someone that actually knew the victim. Only 20% of murders are committed by a complete stranger. So the gathering of evidence is very important. You can't look at something and go, I'm going to look at this, what I see right now. I'm not going to gather any evidence, just what I see right now. It would be in shambles. If you, I mean, if you just look at the Salem witch trials and you see things where no evidence was gathered at all and how dangerous that is. So observation is taking note of something with our senses. Evidence refers to the information or data that has been left behind. So we have to ask ourselves this important question. What is science? What is science? Because today we're told science is a whole host of things. You can literally look up when you get home, look up um, the scientific explanation for 10, 12, 13, 14, 20, 25, 60 different genders in science. And when you look at science and you go, no, wait, wait, wait a minute, that's not what science used to be. Now science is fluid. It moves all over the place. You've literally got, I was, saw an article the other day that talked about the science behind a two-spirited person. Two-spirited person. They're neither male nor female. They actually have both residing with inside of them. And that's literally taught in universities as being science. So what we have to do is we have to establish what science actually is. Okay, what is it? Now the word science has its roots in Latin. And it simply means knowledge. And it was coined, though, however, by a man who was a Christian, his name, uh, William Hewell, in 1833. He also coined the term, the uniformitarianism, for Lyle. He coined that, but he didn't coin it in a good sense. 
He was actually saying, yeah, you just throw everything in one box and say that's it. But now that's the term they use to champion their cause. So if we think about science, I don't have it on here, but I'm going to read it to you, okay? So science is the knowledge or a system of knowledge covering general truths or the operation of general laws, especially as obtained and tested through the scientific method. A scientific method is the recognition and formulation of a problem, the collection of data through observation and experimentation, and the formulation of testing and hypothesis. So what we see is we see a problem here, and then we test the problem. We try to figure out what the solution is. We don't just make up stuff, okay? That's what science is. So if you look at science, really, science is observing and testing in real time and gathering data based on evidence that was left before us. This is what science was then, okay? Charles Lyell's theory of uniformitarianism did away with the need for evidence. And that's really, really big. Because if you do away with the need for evidence, then you can put anything in there and it has the chance of, well, being accepted. Evidence is very, very important. Everything you need to know about the past, don't worry about evidence. Everything you need to know about the past is available right now through present day observation. Now, let me give you an example of that. Who here has ever been to the Grand Canyon? Been to the Grand Canyon? Oh, it's beautiful. You can't describe it really. I mean, I've got a picture, but you can't describe it till you actually go there. It's just incredible. You come across the Grand Canyon. The earth looks as though it has been cut with a knife, just beautiful layers, layer after layer of beautiful rock. The evidence of a catastrophic event is overwhelming. That's what has been uh, taught and um, believed for many, many years. Vast layers of hard rock have been crushed together with unimaginable force, and 11 trillion tons of earth has been washed away. That's incredible. 11, we can't even really fathom that number, but 11 trillion tons of earth has been washed away. And then you look at that and you see all of this evidence and then you observe a small river at the bottom of that. And you go, my observation says a small river's at the bottom, a small river must have done this. So over the course of five to six million years, they say, give or take a couple of weeks, that river cut out that massive canyon. It's amazing. It cut those rocks into such clean lines. That's incredible. That small river has so much power that we don't even really understand. And literally, that's what it is. That's what observation without evidence does, okay? So we have to be careful about that. Observe and ignore the evidence. Now, this is the mindset that Charles Darwin, see if that changes, that Charles Darwin has, there we go. Make sure this thing's turned on right. That's the mindset of young Charles Darwin as he set sail across the sea, okay? Now, there were many geologists that challenged Lyell's uniformitarianism, but Charles Darwin was not one of them. Do you know why? He wasn't a geologist. He literally got his Bachelor's of Art degree there at Christ College at Cambridge University. <laughs> he graduated with a three-year degree in case you don't know, that's a general degree. I'm not bashing anyone who got a general degree. But, yes, it, <laughs> the general degree, we used to always tease uh, 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 people who would go to get the general degree. Uh, my cousin, he was going to get 
I asked him, it was Micah, I was asking Micah, what are you going to do? He's going to go get the general degree. So we were teasing him about that saying, the general degree, when you go get the general degree, that means you don't know what you're going to get, you know. So we'd always tease him and stuff like that. Him being the one that went off to college and we're all sitting at the house, you know. Anyway, so we didn't worry about that little detail. Um, so he got a general degree. His classes included mathematics, Greek, Latin, philosophy, history, some natural science classes, including physics, chemistry, and biology, and theology. There you go. That's the class setup of the genius who came up with, um, who was credited with modern day evolution. Several years later, Darwin would go back and receive an honorary Master's of Art degree. Honorary. So he actually wrote a paper for that and they gave him that. So this is the man who's going to explain the origin of life. Okay, so he's going on this journey. Now, this is a pretty cool journey. I think if I was then, man, if I wasn't married and I, I had this opportunity to do this, it would be pretty cool because you're going to travel, expenses paid, around the world for five years and go see all these things. So the first place he stopped was the Cape Verde Islands off the coast of Africa. He went there, he collected some specimens, he made observations, wrote those down, and then they left from there. From there, the ship made its way along the coast of South America to Uruguay, Argentina, Peru, Chile. It's not Chile, it's Chile. So that's where they went, different places. During these stops, he collected more specimens, he made more observations, and then they moved on. There was no real great discovery here that we're told about. One stop was interesting. There was some conflict there with the other geologists and the other science, scientific people that were on board there, including the, the uh, captain of the ship there. During one stop, it was in southeastern Argentina along the shore of the Santa Cruz River. The river there extends uh, from the Atlantic up to the high Andes Mountains. The Andes Mountains are just beautiful. You should look up some pictures sometime. So today they're covered with snow, but they were there and they spent several weeks studying this area and exploring and surveying the broad canyons there. The evidence was overwhelming that a flood had come through and had cut that canyon. Everybody was in agreement on that. Even smaller areas were cut earlier and they could tell from the meltwater from the Andes that they had been cut earlier. Ignoring the evidence, Darwin stated that the river had been cut over the course of millions of years. And everyone around him is going, are you serious? Can you not see the same things you were doing? So this is what he said. This is his, his genius statement with this stuff. He said, the river, though it has so little power in transporting, even inconsiderable fragments, yet in the lapse of ages, might produce by its gradual erosion an effect of which it is difficult to judge the amount. Okay, to, to uh, try to interpret all of that, I'm not sure. <laughs> it doesn't make sense is what he's saying. It's, it can't even support small fragments going down the stream, but if I'm going to look through it through the lens of these books that Lyle gave me, it must have been millions of years, and it's ignoring the evidence and moving on. Okay, so his next stop, and this is the famous stop, the Galapagos Islands. Now, after leaving South America, the Beagle set sail towards the Galapagos Islands there. Darwin spent several weeks collecting more specimens and observing and making statements about things. And despite what people say, this is not where Darwin discovered evolution. Okay? He discovered, well, he discovered, he saw several things on this island. It was not the first person to come to the island or anything like that. 
He just took uh, observations and notes like everybody else was doing. Now he found a couple of things on there. He found some finches on there. Some finches. There we go. Not those finches. Those finches. No. He, um, he found some finches bearing different beak sizes. And he said, oh my goodness, we can actually see evolution in progress. Perhaps Lamarck was right. Maybe, well, we don't think, we think it takes millions of years, but these guys are actually evolving even faster. And there are all of these questions about that. What he didn't realize is that all the birds on the island actually interbreeded. So that's why they had such different uh, uh, size beaks and different stuff like that. Um, and the same thing with the iguanas. He found these iguanas that could swim. They're marine iguanas. First iguanas they had ever discovered that could swim. Surely the reason why they could swim is because they had evolved right there, right then and there on the island. And that could prove something. But he didn't come up with evolution at this time. He found tortoises with different characteristics on their shells and he picked flowers. He was collecting all these specimens of flowers. Okay. That's it. That's what he did on the Galapagos Islands. He did not come across some great discovery, and this is what it is. He found George, the missing link, walking across the island, and he was like, oh my goodness. No, it wasn't any of that stuff. He didn't come across any great discovery. He literally collected this stuff, and then he moved on. It actually wasn't until later that he found a purpose for the observations he had made on the island. Now, the beagle then continued to Australia and made its way back to England, arriving in Fairmouth, England on October 2nd, 1836. After returning home, who do you think Darwin met with pretty quickly? Charles Lyell. He met with him to go over all the stuff that he had discovered in light of his book that helped him learn so much. Now keep in mind that Darwin here has not even begun to come up with his advanced version of where we came from, the theory of evolution, okay? Darwin, at this time, it is believed that Darwin still had some belief that there might be a God out there. He had left the church, but some of, some of the friends and different stuff like that still think that he had um, some belief. But all that changes eventually here. One year later, Darwin would marry his first cousin, Emma Wedgwood. They had ten children. Sadly, Charles and Emma watched their baby daughter Elizabeth die in 1845. Two years later, their daughter Mary would pass away as well. Four years after that, Charles Darwin's biggest fear came true. His favorite child, he was the first to say, she was my favorite. Anne got sick with a brief but very, very violent illness and died after a 10-day battle and it completely changed who Charles Darwin was. The grief was literally too much to bear. Charles Darwin, friends had, close friends to him, had claimed that he had told them he had lost all pleasure in his life. It's just tragic, just so sad. His daughter dies. He has three, he has ten children. Three of his, daughter die, three of his daughters die. And then Anne, his favorite one of all, she is the last one to pass away. Now, this dark time is considered the death knell of Darwin's fading beliefs in a creator. His health suffered greatly from this. His relationship suffered greatly as well. He said there was no hope in life, there's no creator, there's no design, and now Darwin comes to the point after all of this that there's literally no purpose in life. Angered and embittered, Darwin's writings then took a darker tone after he had 
experienced this. One tone that he took was the essential need of death in natural selection. There must be, it plays such a pivotal role, role in his theory that he was coming up with of advanced um, evolution. He said there must be death. There is death, but its essential need in nature was very, very um, uh, understandable now after this loss that he had. He coined the term natural selection, but later sort of went with survival of the fittest, meaning that the weak must die so the strong can survive. And we actually see some of those things used later on in history. What I want you to do is I want you to turn to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. So Charles Darwin changes, that loss changes him completely. So much so that his colleagues became concerned about him and his writings. He was so dark, he was so brought down by this. They were afraid that it was influencing his scientific writings uh, his notes and other stuff like that. There was no joy or peace in his life. Darwin set out to finish his book, though. He had a reason, he thought. He had lost Anne. He had lost his two other daughters. His reason would be to finish this book. And now, having experienced the loss that he had, the overwhelming loss, Darwin set out over the next eight years to complete it. This would be Darwin's response to intelligent design. It would be his response to a loving creator. It would be his response to his own life. Darwin was set, set out to, to build his masterpiece. His masterpiece, of course, was the origin of species, which claims to know where, how man has evolved and where we came from. One of the most damaging books in modern history when it comes to creation, when it comes to the Bible, uh, because it points people away from that. The sad thing, I think, is, is that Charles Darwin, especially if you read his letters, my goodness, so that he, he could not reconcile pain and loss with the fact that there might be a creator. Because if there was a creator, then there would be no pain, there would be no loss. That was in his mind, and that uh, came forth too as well in his letters. To have pain and loss means, to have that present means the absent absence of a creator, especially a loving creator. The things he has said, and we'll look at some of those coming up here when we dissect some more stuff, the things said against Christianity are just sad. It's a bitter, bitter, sad man who is attacking and attacking and attacking all for his loss. So he could not reconcile the, the present of pain meant there could be no presence of a creator. Now, I think it's interesting because when we look at this, we get to this point in Charles Darwin's life to where he has no hope of going forward. And then we look in John chapter 14. I think this is very interesting. Let's look in John chapter 14 and verse 25. And Jesus here is speaking to his disciples. He says, These things have I spoken unto you, being yet present with you, but the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father hath sent, uh, will send in my name, he shall teach you all things, and bring all things to your remembrance. Whatsoever I have said unto you, peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, but I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, troubled 
neither let it be afraid. Over and over and over again, Scripture shows where Christ said to not be afraid in the presence of pain, in the presence of fear. Verse 28, He have heard how I said unto you, I go away and come again unto you. If ye loved me, ye would rejoice, because I said, I go unto, my, unto the Father, for my Father is greater than I. Verse 29, And now I have told you before it come to pass, that when it is come to pass, ye might believe. Hereafter I will not talk much with you, for the prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me. Verse 31, But that he, but that the world may know that I love the Father, as the Father gave me commandment, even so do I. Arise, let us go thence. Christ here is promising his disciples something incredible. He's promising them peace for the journey to come. It's a hope. Don't be afraid about what's going to happen to you. There is a peace and a hope. God is giving you peace. Every one of these men knew great loss. I mean, it's totally different than America's loss. We experience loss and the pain is unbearable. We cannot fathom what it was like then when loss happened all the time. People certainly did not live longer. You had murders uh, 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 and executions far greater than you have today. Had all of these problems going on back then. We're used to America's society where, well, it's not quite that bad. Back then it was much, much worse. So every one of these men here who Christ is talking to, they had known loss and all, loss, and all of them would end up losing their lives except for one. So what did Christ promise them? What is the promise that Christ gives them? A peace that passes all understanding, even in the face of pain and sorrow. <clears throat> a mansion earlier, we, you see in that, that chapter, if you go back to the beginning, a mansion beyond human imagination, heaven to call home. So there's hope. Aren't you glad that there's hope? I mean, can you imagine going through life and at the end of your life and all of the work and all the study and all everything you've put into it, your conclusion is because you lost someone dear to you that now there is no hope at all. And it's just empty. What a sad place to be in. That's where Charles Darwin was. We have hope, we have peace, and there's contentment. Isn't it incredible that God offers this contentment in a wicked world? In a wicked world, you can have contentment right now in a wicked world if you'll follow Him. That's just incredible to me. The one who gives us peace has overcome the world. And I'm thankful that God gives us peace and it doesn't have to be reasoned or explained by mortal man. God's peace is something that you cannot fathom. You can't write down and explain. It's like they try to do with the origin of man. You can't do that. So what Charles Darwin did is Charles Darwin got to a place in his life to where he had to choose. And when, when suffering the loss, he said, no, there's no way. A God wouldn't do that. Absolutely not. And he pulled back. And then what Darwin did is we see a shift in Darwin to where now, because we're told that whenever Darwin wrote this, we're told that Darwin caught a lot of flack. And there were a lot of people who didn't agree with what he had written. But the, the Christians are after him. The Christians are going to give Darwin. It was actually, and we'll see some more next week, it was actually the opposite of that. It was a social campaign against the ministers and against the Christian people. And we talked about last week about is there not a cause. And Charles Darwin changes with this, and then he goes, okay, that's it. 
Now I'm going to push forward and there is no God and now I'm going to prove it. So he writes the, the origin of species. During this time, while Darwin was gone, Lyle, Charles Lyle, began to pressure a lot of the pastors around there. And what he did was, is he was setting the stage. The 1800s, it was considered a time whenever there weren't many scientific discoveries. It was like a, they considered it then a dead spot for science because not a lot was going on. And with not a lot going on, you would have these people come up with these crazy harebrained ideas and these crazy schemes. And then it was seen, this is not, we're not really discovering anything right now. But during that time, during this window of about 1830 all the way to 1860, that 30 year window, there started to be that change. And that change with Darwin going out doing the legwork and collecting stuff, and then you've got Lyle waiting behind the stage there, and he's going from church to church and other places like that, pressuring these people. And what we do is we start to see a shift in change. And what man does is man leaves the truth of the Bible, and we're so concerned with how we look to other men that we won't stick true to the Word of God. We all know about social pressures today. <laughs> okay, you, get, you have social media, you know all about that. You work a job, if you worked a job during the pandemic, you know all about social pressures. Some of those same things went on back then. Can you imagine coming to church and a pastor getting up and going, we've preached this whole way this entire time, but guess what? Here's a new discovery that was made over here, so we're going to try to find a way to take that and cram it into the Bible, and I'm going to preach that to you, and if you don't go along with this, then you're a heretic and you're just not smart. You know, wouldn't that be crazy? That's some of the stuff that started to take place in the 1800s. Now, the origin, the, the, the origin of Species was not a popular book whenever it was published, but what we're going to do next week, we're going to jump into, we're going to look at some influential people who changed that. And you'd be surprised some of the people, some of the people who changed it. Uh, ministers in, in England, Scotland, and then some in America stepped up and they took up the cause of evolution. Uh, and we see some pretty crazy stuff. Have you ever heard of the gap theory before? Here we go. So we're going to see the gap theory. That is put in there. What they did is they took these scientific explanations and they tried to cram them into the Bible. But when you go back and you look at how they came up with those scientific explanations, there's no question about that. Lyle is a geologist. Surely he must know what he's talking about. No, you can be a scientist. You can have a million letters behind your name. You can be the smartest person in the world. And you go against the Bible and it's not going to be true. So you can come up with anything you want to, and especially how they did it, okay? So people were afraid to be left behind by perceived local trends of the day, and they, uh, uh, they were afraid to do that. So what they did is they started to change how they spoke, how they talked from the pulpit, and it literally has affected millions of people to this day. What happens in these churches, we're still feeling the ramification for it. And I talked about last week, but like I said, is there not a cause? Man, there is a cause. In a dead time of science, this changed the whole future of modern science. This was considered a dead time, and now it changes all of this stuff. What we do is we go back to the Bible and we see what God's Word says over and over and over again. Let's look in Genesis chapter 1 one more time real quick here. Genesis chapter 1, and we'll be through. Man comes up with his reasonings. 
Man comes up with his reasonings and goes, yep, this must be what it is. I'm going to, I'm going to try to uh, reason that there's not a creator. My mentor, Charles Lyle, says there's no way there can be a creator, so there's no way there can be a creator. So what I want to do is I'm going to throw out everything I've learned growing up, my whole upbringing, and I'm going to try to force everything into this one pocket. And it's all put away by this one verse right here. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. Let's read it together. Here we go. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. That's it. That's it. And then everything we see from there. When you look at life, when you look at creation, everything from that is the truth. We don't need to add to it. We don't need to change stuff. So next week, I've shown you three people. I've shown you three people. Um, Lamont, I've shown you Lyle, I've shown you Darwin. And all three of those guys would have been laughed out of town if it was not for the group of men we're going to look at next week. And these group of men call themselves ministers. One one guy I'm going to show you about next week, he was a reverend. i use the word rather lightly. He was a reverend, and he thought it was needful to not feed. He wrote it was needful to not feed the poor. So the poor would starve out, making way for the fit in society. Whenever Darwin was coming up, finishing his book, the writings of that minister were at the forefront of some of Darwin's ideas on survival of the fittest. And they call themselves ministers. So we're going to look at the true people behind evolution. It wasn't just these three guys. There was a driving force of godly men that had compromised. So we'll see that next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the day. We thank you for our time together, Lord. I pray you'll bless us. As we go throughout this week, we pray for those, Lord, on our prayer list. Once again, I pray, Father, that you will help us, Lord, as we look at your word coming up on this Sunday, Lord, and then next week. Father, I pray that we will never, just to be seen differently of men or, or propped up on a pedestal, I pray we'll never stray from your word. So oftentimes, we can't explain it or we can't properly defend it. So what we do is we step back and we hand your word over to wicked men. We hand your word over to godless men who want nothing to do with it and we allow them to tear it apart and then hand it back to us. I pray, Father, that good men will stand up and speak. I pray, Father, that our children will know the truth. We will teach our children, teach our grandchildren. We will teach those around us the truth of your word so it's not given over to men who want nothing to do with it. Father, it is worth fighting for. Thank you, Lord for giving us a cause, and that cause is you. Thank you for being with us during loss and pain. Father, help us to always follow you no matter what we do, no matter where we go in life. Things are true in this life, and that's you are the creator, and you loved us, and you gave us your infallible word. We thank you for our time together. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.